This is the Future of Security Operations podcast brought to you by Tynes. This show is dedicated to empowering SecOps leaders to reimagine how their teams work so they can scale their security efforts and build a team that achieves more with less. In each episode, we'll learn from a security leader who has found a way to free their team from tedious manual tasks and remove the barriers that are preventing them from doing high-value strategic work that truly matters. We'll learn from their mistakes, distill their best practices, and leave you with actionable insights that you can immediately put to work with your team. I'm your host, Thomas Kinsler, COO and co-founder of Tynes. Now, let's jump right into today's show. Hi, everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Security Operations podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Rebecca Blair, the manager of the Security Operations Center at Toast. Thanks for chatting with me today, Rebecca. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Before we begin, can you tell us a little bit about your background and the work you do at Toast? Yeah, for sure. So I came to Toast maybe about a year and a half ago, a little bit more than that, as the first hire for the Security Operations Center. And so the background there is just I came in from the ground running of just hiring out a team and and building out kind of SOC operations from the ground up, which has been definitely an adventure. I love it. Yeah, it's really super exciting opportunity as well in a fast-growing startup like Toast. When you're thinking about, I suppose, building out a security operations center, you've seen security operations and presumably security operations Mm -hmm. evolve. How would you describe the state of security operations today and how did that affect your approach to building the SOC in uh, Toast? Yeah, I think the state of security operations as a whole right now is kind of like in a flux transition where we've seen over the last couple of years, people switching from traditional IDSs to obviously going to more hybrid or cloud solutions for everything. People are obviously putting more of a focus on automation, which just makes sense. And you've seen kind of the birth of the MSSPs within like the last five to not even 10 years ago. So it's really interesting that it's just kind of a time of evolution of security operations. Yeah, it's definitely evolving. And like the data that you're getting through the amount of data that you have to deal with is evolving. The amount of alerts that you have to deal with is evolving. And I know like, yeah, there's a lot of frameworks that say you have to have, you know, detect these 215 techniques or Mm -hmm. whatever. And I suppose when you're building out alerts and you're building out this, you know, you're building it from the ground up, how do you prioritize? How do you say, here's what I should be building first and figure out what matters the most? Yeah. So fortunately at Toast, they did have an AppSec team and a CorpSec team. So they did have some people there who had been with the company for a little bit. However, what we want to take a look at is the very first thing is looking at where our coverages were. So we want to identify where were our gaps and what do we need to do as well as our risk landscape. So one of the things that makes Toast very unique is not only do we have to do the security for Toast as a company in general, but we also have managed networks for our customers as well. So you have to think about what is the cybersecurity threats facing this mom and pop sandwich shop, as opposed to just your traditional phishing and stuff like that. So we really relied a lot on our risk landscape that we put together. Okay. And I don't want you to reveal any secret sauce, but what were some of those threats that you realized, hey, this is something that we we need to prioritize, like building out detections for, or, you know, start. Yeah, detecting as quickly as possible. Yeah, for sure. So we're we're definitely a remote-focused company, and obviously we have customers all over the U.S. right now. And so one of the things that we want to think about is, you know, suspicious logins. And one of the ways traditionally people have done it has been through geofencing. But with you know restaurant chains that have twenty different devices, it's possible for somebody to be in other states for logging and for management. So geofencing just didn't make sense. So then we had to look into other authentication solutions. And kind of narrowing down from there and finding, you know, account takeovers. We also have to think about you're working with a base that might not be the most tech focused 
And naturally, right? No, you know, somebody isn't going to be focused on cybersecurity if they're focused on running their restaurant. So just taking some of those aspects as well as like understanding customer pain when we preach into any of our alerts that we write. So just to make sure I understand correctly, you're also building detections for your product as well. So for your customers. So it's an internal and external uh, yep. security operations center. That's a I awesome, really, really exciting. But yeah, that's like a completely different challenge for that a lot yeah. of uh, as a lot of listeners are facing. I, I yeah have worked on those teams as well, but it's a totally different beast, especially when folks may not be super tactical. I don't want to mm-hmm. go down a rabbit hole here, but I do want to ask a little bit about Toast. Can you tell us a tiny bit about what Toast does? I, I know, but tell us a little bit about the success you've had at, during the pandemic as well. It's counterintuitive might be the word I'd use. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, the pandemic happened. I, obviously, I wasn't part of Toast yet at the point since I've only been here about a year and a half. But, you know, as every company thought, like they made required cuts and kind of didn't know what to expect. But it's been really interesting hearing from some of the different use cases. So, so Toast has their point of sale device, but they also have a lot of different line offerings that people don't know about. So we offer payroll management, so employee management software. We partnered and acquired Extra Chef about a year ago now, which does supply chain management for sourcing for restaurants. We have a line of capital loans, which is called Toast Capital. So they have a lot of different ways where they're able to actually help sustain restaurants, as well as doing one was like called Toast for Good with a a restaurant recovery fund where it actually lent money, not lent money, but gave money and grants to restaurants to help keep their operations going. They did a lot of work with online ordering. So one of the really interesting use cases that I heard of was started off from a food truck company that had online ordering. And they would pick a location and say, I'm at the corner of these two locations and send, use the Toast marketing module to send to their customer base. And that way they would just have like pick up and drop off locations. So that way they couldn't interface with people because it was so early on in the pandemic, but they were still able to keep their business operations afloat with just kind of creative thinking. And that kind of led to a snowball effect and, and just some pretty wild growth for Toast as a company. That's a, <laughs> frankly amazing, but also, yeah. yeah, I suppose like the sort of thing that out of the box thing that you wouldn't have, uh, you mm-hmm. that, that would, you know, be considered a, a crazy hackathon project that would not probably not ship if it, uh, yeah, if you shipped or if you asked to ship it during normal times, but yeah. that's really awesome to see. I suppose like you have to match the innovation of like, as your company grows, as you expand, as uh, like, yeah, you implement new features, you have mm-hmm. to stay on top. However, the challenge that I always faced was that the better you got at detecting, the more you had to respond to. The more alerts you put in place, the more alerts that were being generated. I kind of would love to hear about your thoughts about how you measure the efficacy of your alerts and decide, hey, is this actually alert worth keeping or is this an alert that we should you know, just get rid of? It's, it's, getting too, uh, it's getting too bad. How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, validating alerts, I think, is always a key part to creating any alerts. So what we have set up is we have an integration set up between Splunk as well as our other tools that automatically creates JIRA tickets when an alert gets fired. And then we immediately have your closure actions on your JIRA tickets of did it add value? Was it a true positive? Was it a false positive? So that way we can actually measure what alerts are in one of their efficacy ratings per you know, the amount that they triggered. And then on a quarterly basis, we review and look at the lowest ones and see are there ways that we can actually tune them up? Is it we need to add another search parameter in it or, you know, realistically, if it's a really terrible alert coverage, can we just lump this into something else and then kind of cut out that false positive rating? Because as, like you said, as you get more detections, obviously that means more to triage and every SOC's feeling it where you just need more resources in the, the form of people on your team or more automation or something like that. So it's just not realistic to keep inefficient alerts around. 
Yeah, 100%. It's incredibly hard to stay on top. And a lot of our customers are yeah, using automation to think about that. But I suppose, how do you think about that challenge of there's some alerts and I am thinking about some of those like suspicious login alerts or those geo, you know, geo alerts where they're really noisy. They really only work one every 100, not even 100, one every thousand times. But that one in a thousand time, it's actually super useful. How do you like if an alert is like a, you know, it's a bit of a Hail Mary last gasp in that sense. But how do you measure the effectiveness of those? Or is it that in the manual review, you're like, actually, this this works? Yeah. So, I mean, geofencing is a really good example of that. It's traditionally known as just a Hail Mary type thing because of obviously VPNs, everything can kind of move around. So what we did then is we triangulated specifically around like user IDs for just authentications. And so we picked other forms of identification to track. And then as well as like, we have every restaurant has a restaurant good. And if you're a chain restaurant, you have an overarching chain. So like we try to pick it based off of additional identifying factors rather than just saying, you know, if you log in and your IP shows from this different area, immediately flag it. Well, you might get something out of that original word. That's kind of the vast approach. The reality is, I think out of my entire career, I've had one actual incident found from something like that. So a lot of times too, because there's so much noise, you actually miss what's legitimate. So a lot of times we kind of had to rethink and I definitely have a, at least a couple different whiteboards in my office now of times of just trying to write out what makes sense to actually triangulate on it. And so between that and between log correlation with other types of logs. So yeah, makes a ton of sense. And yeah, I've, I've had at least one, like uh, this was bad. It was a, an incident that was yeah. detected as a result of it, but plenty of ones that I was like, this is really interesting and probably shouldn't be happening, but it's not actually uh, not actually malicious. Same with the whole lot of like DLP alerts and stuff like that that are, uh, that are interesting. You kind of touched on it earlier, but security teams are facing like way too much manual work and I suppose spending their time on those boring alerts. At Toast, what are you doing to reduce the amount of time that analysts are spending on those? And what are you doing to keep your analysts like happy and excited about about their jobs, their roles as well? Yeah. So the first thing, I guess, first part of the question is, what are we doing around time and stuff like that? So we do have a SOAR product. Right now we use Insight Connect. So we are implementing SOAR on most of our workflows and, and alerts, at least to the extent that we can. Mm-hmm. And then we've also written scripts. So like the, the JIRA integration, that was a way to just have case management automatic. So we're, we're looking at automating and essentially any single place where we can, it's just not scalable to keep it manual anymore. Like that will never be a scalable 100%. process, especially at a company that's growing quickly. And then as far as keeping people exciting, it's a little bit of a mix. So the world of operations is really interesting because you only ever want to plan out to 50 to 60% of your time. Like the other portion is always going to be that alert triage. And then you have the you know other portion of being projects. So we kind of do a mix. So we try to do a six-month rolling roadmap for all of our teams at Toast, specifically around security, at least. I can definitely speak for all the teams in security. Um, and within those six months, it's a collaborative process, both between the teams to have, you know, again, collaboration for projects. So for example, we're allowing some other teams to work on the SOAR project with us and allowing some cross-learning, as well as giving everybody on my team input. So one of the big things that I try to do as a leader is I let my team explore as much as they can. So a good example is I have a team member who's a cloud security engineer on my team, who's known for going out and finding like the most random, unheard of open source tool, but then tweaking with it enough and then finding just a crazy amount of value every single time. So I found by, you know, obviously you have to track what people are doing just for normal operations. 
But by giving them a lot of independence, it really helps them keep excited because it helps drive what they want to look at. Yeah. And I think in this day and age, and I'll ask about that in a second, but at this stage, you have to keep your team happy. You have to keep them excited yeah. about what they're doing. Uh, otherwise, they will just like go to another uh, another organization. But worse, it's just so hard with that pressure of there could be another incident. You need to make it fun. You need to make it exciting. And mm-hmm. certainly yeah, working on automation projects or working on, yeah, like checking out the latest open source tool or building out really fun detections for, you know, the latest brand of uh, malware or the latest CV. It's really actually, yeah, yeah, it can be exciting. And you feel like you're, yeah, you're grown as a person when you're doing that. Yeah, even little things like if a new vulnerability comes out, proving if the vulnerability would actually affect your your instance or not, and going down that rabbit hole. I think actually, yeah, for me, that's actually one of the most critical things that you actually can be doing in an organization, yeah. just in general. That like you've got your standard mean time to detect, mean time to respond. Mm-hmm how quickly you can tell if you're affected and how quickly you can alert everybody who needs to be alerted that you are affected by any vulnerability is, I hope, is going to be a metric that will be measured by security operations teams throughout throughout the world in the next couple of years. I guess kind of parallel to that challenge of making sure that your analysts are happy, there's also a real analyst shortage. Mm-hmm. I know you had a bit of a different route into security. In fact, there's no such thing as a normal route into security, so I'll take that back. But I suppose, how do you think about developing talent and sourcing talent for Toast? Yeah, so we definitely have you know baselines across like what are you looking for around the skills. And the one thing that we did is we also made sure to standardize the type of questions because we wanted to give everybody kind of an equal footing. And then we also took off any requirements, at least for the security roles, of needing to have a degree. So being it based off of what is your experience. And I think that was something that was nice. And then we also, part of it is we have a panel. So we have people on the team who are just going to be asking your technical questions. We have people who are going to be asking more around communication type questions and people who measure what we call your toastiness to try to make sure that they gel with the team. And so there are people who... They might not have been the strongest from a technical standpoint, but we saw in them like the drive that they had. And then we did extend an offer. And they're some of our top performers of just giving people those chances where you you can see and across the group, right? So it's not just a one judgment call. When you see that across multiple people who have interviewed with them, it's really easy to, to take that risk. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things I used to encourage people to interview for when working in a SOC is tenacity. Like it's not, it is obviously, if you know what a phishing email looks like, that's brilliant. If you know what, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever a suspicious login, or if you know what a new cloud security alert looks like, that's absolutely fantastic. But one of the biggest and most important pieces that a security analyst can have is that, I disagree with myself when I'm saying this, but like it's the spidey sense of this is weird. I'm just going to keep pulling this string to figure out what's going right and what's going wrong. Yeah, yeah, that sense of curiosity and just that, that drive to continue learning. Yeah, exactly. One of the things that I was reading about, I suppose, when I was doing some research for this, was that you also help train or put together part of the curriculum for a company called CyberVista. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And also, I, like, do, how, I do. How do you prepare people for a world of a sock? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I have an illness where I can't say no to anything where I feel like it helps grow any skill set. So yeah, so for the past couple of years, I've done work with this company called CyberVista. And it started off with kind of like on the job training and then has kind of evolved from there. Basically, it started off where we were just kind of explaining, you know, what is a SOC? What are common tools that you look at, you might look at? And the gap that I filled in there was they didn't have people who were security industry professionals at the time. So what we did is I took the approach of how I learned, which was a lot of hands-on learning. So a lot of the videos that I do with CyberVista and with their courses 
are almost strictly just screen sharing, <laughs> you know, running, opening up a, a Kali Linux uh, box and showing encryption and showing you like the key exchange and showing PCAP and, and digging through it and kind of showing in a way, what is my life as a SOC analyst? So one of the courses that we just finished recording was around AWS and security. So actually standing up the full environment of here's AWS Macy, which is a tool that I use at Toast. You know, here's Guard Duty, here's Security Hub, and really doing a deep dive in setting up that test environment to walk through. That's awesome. And I, like AWS security, well, cloud security just in general is an area that's mm-hmm. not being served well. And I find that there's still far too much focus on, hey, here's how you exploit Active Directory. And yet there's an... an and no offense, like that's it's yeah. it's good, but at the same time, there's so little focus on hey, here's the latest AWS exploit techniques and how you detect them or how you defend against them. How does somebody, if anybody wants to check that out, how do they check that out? Yeah, if you just go to cybervista.com and then you can contact them, and they do have different options for getting multiple classes, getting classes. I, I can talk to them about doing some on-demand stuff as well. That's awesome. Yeah, I definitely encourage people to check it out. It's such a such an interesting area, and the whole uh, yeah CPSM area is going to be. Mm-hmm. it's definitely going to be an area that every company or certainly every cloud first company is going to be focusing on in the next few uh, years if they're not already slightly related but more related to your own uh, your own education you also completed an mba recently how has that affected your perception of the security world and also as a security executive your interactions with that uh, with the business yeah slight correction almost completed i'm down my to my apologies. last, last oh, few God. classes so soon no jinxing please yeah. So really, I learned early on in my career I, is I had a CISO who might have understood the business, but really didn't understand the tech. The, the story I always tell is they came in with this grand idea of how we would no longer be able to be fished is if you put an ampersand in everybody's email address. And that's not something that you can even technically do. But they were sold on this idea. And it, so it took weeks of explaining that from a technical standpoint, you just can't do it. And it was early on in my career, I learned that I wanted to go up to that executive level. Can't Prior to that, I Exactly. So, yeah. So it started kind of growing in my career in general, taking on a manager position and then uh, previously being the director of SOC operations at Ironhead. And I really got to a point where I found that it was really kind of hurting my growth to not embrace the business side more. And so that I do have the strong technical background, but I really want to look at a lot more projections, working with, you know, the budgets, the financial analysis and, and all of that. And that's when I started my MBA program. So it's kind of opened this whole world in kind of bridging the gap between the two. And I think it'll be really interesting if we see more InfoSec professionals kind of go down that route. And I think you could really have like a new line of CISOs coming up where they have those strong technical backgrounds, but actually understanding the business relationships of it. And so I'm really excited about the future. Yeah, very much the security leaders that I've always enjoyed working with and working for the most are, yeah, those people that have the technical understanding. And it's not that they can't be like effective if they have the business understanding, but knowing, hey, during the middle of an incident, I need some air cover and here's the amount of time that I need, or just implicitly knowing, yeah, this could be really great or this could be really bad is uh, is absolutely fantastic. It's very hard to stay on top, but I definitely uh, love to see more people going down, uh, down that route. I suppose getting budget for security teams and, you know, it's really hard for security teams to sell the wins, say, hey, here's what we're, you know, here's what we're doing great. And even like, you know, every metric to a certain extent is gameable. Has it given you any thoughts on how to pitch the value that you're delivering to the business and like affecting the top line, not just the bottom line? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Most security is looked at as a, like a cost basis, right? right? 
it's when everything's really quiet, you're doing your job, but that also means people kind of forget that security is there sometimes. So one of the things we do is we try to, to over probably communicate about what's going on, whether it's through just kind of weekly metrics to our, all of our ELT that talks about anything that we have coverage on or reports. But anytime we have an incident, especially if there's no monetary cost or anything like that, we make sure, especially in our postmortem docs, to call out, if we didn't catch this, this is what it would have cost us. And looking at not only, you know, could it have cost our customers downtime, could it have cost us actual directly financial impact, or what would be the cost if we had to bring in a DFIR provider or something like that. So we try to call out the, we caught this, that's great, but if not, you would have owed this much money and then try to help prove kind of our value from that. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. It's still, um, yeah, I don't know. It's still really hard to get people to, uh, still really sure. hard to get people to listen. One of the other things that I was I learned about was that you're a real big fan of dashboards. That's not something I hear a lot, but do you use dashboards to, I suppose, to measure the value of what the team is doing or do you use them to share with upper management about the effectiveness of certain alerts or how do I get better with dashboards? I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I probably overused dashboards. I'll, I'll openly admit to that one. However, it came up to a couple of years ago is I had a, a CISO who was very big into dashboards. And when I actually looked at the ones that he wanted, they just made no sense. I love metrics, but they have to be able to actually portray something valuable. And I think that's one of the things that's really hard in security. We have a very a large habit of showing metrics that don't actually mean anything. So I started tweaking a lot with, at that time, it was the Ironet Splunk app. So I started tweaking a lot with the Splunk app, which was our original dashboard, and then helped get that packaged into the app for Ironet for Splunk and kind of going from there. So I, I still use dashboards a decent amount, and it, it's kind of measured for a little bit of everything. So we might use it specifically for looking at PCI managed networks that we're looking at in different metric points that we need to pull up there. I use Jira dashboards for the velocity ratings of my team members to measure kind of the, the work that we're getting done in the projects. So yeah, I, I kind of use dashboards for a little bit of everything. I just the idea for me is I want to create that single pane of glass where I can get as much usable data as possible whenever I go and click on it to just save myself time. Yeah, I think the aim is so noble. I just find it really hard, hard to do it. And yeah, well, I don't know. I'd love to dive in and see actually yeah, see what uh, see what really good dashboards look like. If you've got any resources, I'd love to share them as well. As I was taking a little bit of attack, another major topic in security these days is like analyst mental health and that burnout mm-hmm. that security teams face. Is that something that you're measuring? Or Atos, what are you doing to address these concerns with your team? Yeah, it's something that I've always taken very seriously, both at Toast and prior, because I've been fortunate to have high retention rates. And and I think a lot of that is to how I run my teams. Mm -hmm. So we really try to take the focus of like, while work is great, it's only one aspect of your life is people, everybody always has so many things going on outside of life, which is a big thing to always do kind of constant check-ins with people on my team. So one of the things that's interesting is my team is completely remote. So not even just in the US, I have somebody who actually works out of Ireland, California, a little bit all over the place. So it can make both a scheduling nightmare, but it also means it's very, very hard. So my team's never actually been in the same room together yet. So it's things to like think about. So we do a lot of virtual stuff at the moment where we play, we play code names a lot as a team. So like virtual game nights or game days, and we'll pick like an hour and we'll do that with our team or with additional security teams. We have a wine tasting and tomorrow that's scheduled. We do mocktail classes. We did card magic a while ago. So we try to do a lot of like random little things every, at least once a month 
And then we try to do additional stuff from there. So at the beginning of the pandemic at Ironet, my wife and I sent out care packages to everybody on my team with like coffee and staples just to to keep morale high. So we always look for something like that. And then another thing that Toast does is we actually had one last week is periodically you just have a wellness day. So it's just, it doesn't count as PTO, just nobody go online, just do whatever you need to do for your health, mental health. And so that was really cool to then talk about, you know, well, I went golfing or I just laid in the hammock in my backyard or something like that, whatever is relaxing to you. And and then we also have like stipends that every toaster gets every quarterly to go towards just wellness in general. There's no stipulations on what you have to use it for because everybody defines wellness differently. So we're definitely targeting as many different places. And then we even do uh, like employee resource groups, depending on what you you identify it for. So I'm a part of the multi-grain group, which is the LGBTQ plus group. And they'll do uh, like, they just did a cocktail class for Pride Month. And so we also have a lot of like company-wide Airbnb online experiences that you can really kind of create your own little communities within Toast or within your team. And that really helps keep you more engaged and it really helps combat uh, just, you know, the burnout. I love it. There's like so many different initiatives that I had that that you kind of mentioned there. Yeah, I feel like it's an amazing company to work for. And yeah, I'd love to work on your team as well. It sounds like this uh, is a lot of fun. (laughs) The other thing I've really learned is that it turns out Toast is an amazing name of a company. There's so many different variations (laughs) that you can use for uh, for employees or for for, for groups or whatever. Yeah, we use a lot of bread puns. Yeah, I uh, I I really like it. I, there's times there's not quite as many, but I'll, I'll come up with some. Uh, we yeah, we call our team members Tinos, and it's it's got a nice ring to it, but it's not quite as uh, not quite as toasty. It's pretty uh, it's pretty awesome. I'm getting totally totally sidetracked. Yeah. Um, so if you think about a lot of uh, like you have, you're building a security operations center. There's a lot of other people that are you know building security operations centers or will be in the future. What is the number one piece of advice you'd share with others who are like leading security operations teams at fast growing companies today? I think especially if you're building it from the ground up is just kind of keep in mind that like Rome wasn't built in a day. It's very easy. And I know I even did this when I first came to Toast and did it even at Ironet with building that team out of you look at there's so many things to do and it, it almost becomes overwhelming. And you it said you try to take pieces on every single project and that's just not realistic. So you have to have that priority and that pecking order of what can I do? Pick some projects that might be easier, but be the quick wins to help keep people engaged and then pick other ones from a prioritization of that will have the biggest impact. And then, so kind of just pick and choose what battles you're going to have to be able to kind of build and scale up. Yeah, it's really, really hard, but it's also the method that we kind of use. It's like, yeah, you're never secure. You're only securing, but more that, yeah, just get 1% better every single day. Do not try to get, you know, yeah, do not build a great and they will come. Do not try to get 100% better by next week. You're A, never going to do that. And B, it'll take too long. You'll get, get way late. Security is not the best organization for, fortunately or unfortunately, for uh, delivering enormous projects. That's not what we're the best at. When you think about security in four or five years time, what do you think a security operations teams or SOC teams are going to look like? I think that's really interesting. Uh, I think if you'd asked me uh, maybe six months ago, I would have talked a lot more around MSSPs. However, the Okta compromise, I know, made a lot of people gun shy to go with third party, uh, uh, third parties like that. I think you're going to see a lot more automation. I think you're going to see it just being larger. I think one of the things that'll be really interesting is I think 
a lot of other security teams like the NOC, like endpoint teams are kind of combined under a SOC or SOC operations. And so I think you're going to see kind of a unification around security. Yeah, totally agree. I think that it's really hard to see all MSSPs being tarnished with the same brush. But yeah, definitely understand that. Definitely understand where you're coming from. It's not fair. And we definitely, uh, we have a short memory in security. So I know a lot of people have already forgotten about it. But I think, I think it's only a matter of time before breaches happen with literally anything. So it's just what makes the most news. 100%. I'd love to dive just a tiny bit more into that. So they're like the, a knock or an endpoint team you know, coalescing under the SOC. I guess what you're getting at there is that the SOC has to become a little bit more operational in what it's doing in like building out those attacks, but operating a little bit more like those teams. For sure. Yeah. So Actos, the team that I currently run right now is we have cloud security engineers, we have general security engineers, we have a, a red teamer on our team. So people who would traditionally be their own separate teams that are obviously working on the incident response efforts, which are SOC operations, but Realizing the power of having somebody who can kind of always run purple team exercises to be able to test all your detections, as well as running, you know, pen tests for the companies and things like that is really powerful. So bringing in people who might have different specialties, who might not have traditionally been on just a a SOC operations, which was originally known for alert triage and incident response. By bringing those in, you really expand out a lot of your capabilities as a SOC. And you're allowed to do a lot more like kind of cross-team collaboration stuff to be able to kind of prove out not only the value of your SOC, but the security posture of your company as a whole. Yeah, enormous. How important do you think those purple teams are? And do you have any suggestions on how to run a good purple team? They're critical. I think it would be silly not to at this day and age. It's the idea that you can not only prove that your detections work, but also prove where your visibility gaps are. So we've run purple teams with the intention of not being able to see a single thing just to prove how bad our visibility was that we need to fix and done the opposite. I think they're critical. It's something that we do on a quarterly basis. Right now, for, we are fortunate that we have a really, really standout red teamer who just loves playing around with stuff, who, who helps run a lot of those. But we, we've definitely all used a decent amount of automation in the past for how to run purple teams and things like that. That's fab. I absolutely love to love to hear it. I think there's a lot of teams that are going down that way, but it's just, yeah, it is, as you say, absolutely critical to get right. And also use it as an opportunity to highlight, hey, this is areas that we need to improve. But this is also how well we've improved, how much we're able to detect, uh, detect nowadays. It can be a really good, not necessarily a feel-good story, but like a feeling better, uh, better yeah. story. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if there's ever a true feel-good story in security. I, I'd argue, and, I, sort yeah. of, and on this, I'd argue that automation is actually a really good feel-good story, that if you're able to add value mm-hmm. to the business and even beyond security, it would say, hey, look at all this amazing work that we've done and look at the time that we've saved. It's very rare that security teams have you know, good news, but being able to say, hey, check out this all this, this awesome stuff that we've done. And especially as you see, kind of as you're saying, you know, security moving a little bit outside standard security operations teams, like moving towards the knock or moving towards the endpoint yeah. team and automating some of those processes, there can be a lot of stuff to, to do there. But I, yeah, I, I'm, yeah. I, think I'm, I think I'm preaching to the choir here. But anyway, Rebecca, I've really enjoyed this conversation, but unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time to cover. Before we wrap up, if people want to follow your journey and keep up with you, what's the best place to do that? Yeah, I mean, I have Twitter like every other security person of LFIO uh, underscore sec, but I really am terrible at posting to it. So if anything, I probably post the most to LinkedIn. So feel free to, to follow or connect on LinkedIn. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And we hope to have you on again in the future. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Future of Security Operations podcast by Tynes. 
If you enjoyed today's show, please do us a favor and leave us a review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast platform. For additional episodes, visit tynes.com slash podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about how Tynes Automation Platform can transform your security operations team, visit tynes.com. Thanks again, and I'll catch you on the next episode.